Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, 2023 is underway, and this gang is going to be the year where we build the army to save democracy in 2024. I need you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up. Gang, I know you're out there. We've recruited 65,000 of your fellow Americans, and I need you to join the ranks today. Go to jointheunion.us and get involved. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by David Rothkopf, CEO of the Rothkopf Group, contributing columnist at The Daily Beast, host of Deep State Radio, and a member of the Board of Contributors for USA Today. David has published a wide array of articles and books on the topics of international affairs, national security, history, and politics for a variety of outlets, including The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Foreign Affairs. His latest book is American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation, and is available wherever fine books are sold. David served as Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade Policy in the Clinton administration, is a graduate of Columbia University, and attended the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. David, welcome back. Thanks, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing great, I think, but that's why I had you on, to remind myself whether or not I should be, if I should be worried. Oh yeah, you're doing terribly. Okay. Okay. That's why I needed to have you on. David, you're someone who I believe just going back through some of the stuff that you've written recently and some of the stuff that you highlighted. You know, where are we? As we're recording this, we're a little more than two years on from January 6th. We've just seen the most authoritarian-ish house conference ever take power. We've just had an attempted coup in Brazil. But you know, unemployment's down, the stock market's up, and the sun came up in the east. So where are we? Can't comment on the sun coming up in the east. That seems to be happening on a regular basis, and I don't see any signs that that's going to change. The stock market being up and inflation being down, I don't think has anything to do with the Republican majority in the House or anywhere else for that matter. As far as our response to the authoritarian threat from Trump, MAGA, and the far right, I think it remains inadequate, and there are several signs of that. One is, you know, what we saw in Brazil, for example, they essentially imitated January 6th. And surely one of the reasons they imitated it is that the people who were behind the January 6th effort here have essentially been rewarded for being behind a coup attempt. Trump's still the leading contender in the Republican Party. The first guy to embrace him after the coup attempt was Kevin McCarthy. He was rewarded. He's now the Speaker of the House. Bunch of the biggest crazies who were involved in that, they're now in charge of the House of Representatives. And, you know, if you look at the Republican field, most of the people are election deniers or defenders in one way or another of aspects of the coup attempt, up to and including Mike Pence, 
who was a target of the coup attempt, you know, who they tried to kill. The message we're sending to the world is not good. And if one of our goals is advancing democracy around the world, we're not doing that. And the reality is that the threat posed by the authoritarian impulses of some on the right is greater today than it ever has been for all the reasons that I mentioned. And because the Supreme Court's going to do its thing and may make it easier for state legislatures to overrule the will of the people later this year, and the House is going to be doing its craziness, and governors from DeSantis to Abbott are going to be doing theirs. And I can't say we've learned the lessons of January 6th or we've learned the lessons of Trump and, phew, now that's in our past. So how do you feel so far? (laughs) Well, not surprised because I I think I generally share your worldview. My question is for you, as someone who is part of the deep state, who is part of the deep D.C. establishment, who understands this stuff, let me ask you this. As you look around to your friends and colleagues there, why do you think they're so unwilling or unable to accept reality as it is instead of hoping against hope for some sort of return to a Ronald Reagan, Tip O'Neill drinking bourbon together utopia? I don't know. Maybe that's a generational issue with some people. Maybe it's because having a strong grip on reality was never a big thing here in Washington to begin (laughs) with. I guess the most positive answer I can offer is sometimes that obliviousness works. And the best example of this is Joe Biden, who essentially has said, I'm just going to tune out Trump. I'm going to tune out the crazies. And I'm going to try to find a way to work with, you know, even just 10, 11, 12 Republicans in the Senate that I need to get things done. And he got a lot done in the past two years. And a lot of it was, you know, what passes for bipartisan these days, you know. And there are governors across America who are doing the same thing at the statehouse level, who are tuning this out. And, you know, if you look around Washington, I don't know that we've learned the lessons of January 6th. If you look around Florida or Texas or Alabama, I don't know that we've learned the lessons of January 6th. But a lot of the rest of the country is just sick to death of this stuff and want to govern. You know, they want government to govern. And there are good examples of Republican and Democratic governors and mayors who've just turned the page and started to do that. And so to me, I've seen that that's a source of optimism. Jared Polis in Colorado or Cooper in North Carolina or Andy Bashir in Kentucky or Gretchen Whitmer. Or, you know, these people are just trying to do stuff. And that's been Joe Biden's superpower. You know, he's just like, okay, well, what can we get done? Let's do it. You know, we can critique any one element of this thing, but if you look at the American Rescue Package or the Bipartisan Infrastructure Deal or the Anti-Inflation Package or you look at the Chips and Science Package or you look at et cetera, et cetera, I don't remember in the past 20 years that much getting done in two years, so it's possible. With as narrowly divided a D.C. as they had. Yeah, but it's possible, and you had a shot while Kevin McCarthy was going through this I'm going to say clown show because my instinct was in the direction of cluster. something. But, <laughs> well, you know, he, he was right. going through this stuff last week. Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell were at a bridge at the Ohio-Kentucky border with a, you know, Mike DeWine and Rob Portman. And, you know, I mean, I'm not a giant 
bench McConnell fan by any means, but you know, they were just like, we got to put up bridges. And it's like, you know, yes, there are rivers. We need bridges. Let's focus on that. It was also brilliant stagecraft by two old poles who knew exactly whose eyes they were sticking fingers in. Absolutely. And by the way, expect more of that for the next two years, right? Because what we're going to have in the House of Representatives is a TV show. They can't do anything. They don't have any power. All they can do is hold hearings, put them on TV, get interviewed by reporters in the hallway, put it on TV, try to pass legislation that is more like the prop comedy of Gallagher. You know, it's going to get a reaction from the crowd. But Get your plastic sheeting out. <laughs> right. Could be a bigger mess than he was ever responsible for. But it's not going to go anywhere. So they're doing this kind of performative nonsense. And I just got to believe nobody thinks that kind of stuff is worth our time, that it's going to be real tiresome real fast. So let me ask you this, because you're right, it is a narrow majority, nine-seat majority in the House with a fractious, to say the least, conference for McCarthy. I say this now, I've said this every episode, I think, since the new year, David, 132 of the 222 members of the Republican conference voted not to certify the 2020 election. More than half of the Republican conference are election deniers, right? On the record, not just saying, oh, I don't know about the but actually on the record. But let me ask you a few things, because you say they have the majority, but they're not in power. Explain that a little bit, because it's a little counterintuitive. Well, first of all, the president's a Democrat. Secondly, the Senate's controlled by Democrats. So they can't actually get anything done without the cooperation of the president and the Senate, which they won't have. Secondly, as you say, if there's a nine-seat majority, that means five of them have got to switch over and vote with the Democrats. And then Hakeem Jeffries is effectively Speaker of the House. And, you know, they're going to be a bunch of times, I suspect. I mean, we've already seen Kevin McCarthy does not keep a disciplined caucus, right? But, you know, I suspect, you know, you're going to have a bunch of these crazies from the Freedom Caucus saying, hey, let's default on our national debt. And there's going to be more than five Republicans who say, uh, no, that would be crazy. Or they're going to say, hey, let's not send any more money to Ukraine. And they're going to be more than five Republicans who are going to say, no, let's not help the Russians that way. And so I think there are going to be a lot of cases where a few Republicans and all the Democrats end up being the majority in the House. Almost parliamentary in that respect. Almost parliamentary. And by the way, Kevin McCarthy could play that game too if he could attract some Democrats, then maybe that would carry over into the Senate. But he is nothing like a leader. Let's just contrast. I don't want to compare them. Let's contrast Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy as leaders. Kevin McCarthy was only ever given a leadership position because of his ability to raise money, because he could go to Orange County, California, and suck up millions of dollars from the new majority guys, which is a bunch of sort of centrist Republicans, or at least they used to be out there. And he could go to Dallas and he could go to Miami and he could go to New York and he talked to all the high net worth dudes for a hundred grand, you know, a seat and bring them along. He's whip, but he was a terrible whip. Anything I think, you know, Boehner ever needed, McCarthy was never able to get him. You know, in 2015, he didn't make it to speaker, right? The conservatives scuttled him then for Paul Ryan. And now he's basically, uh, you know, an absentee father. He shows up when he wants to. There's no discipline. He doesn't enforce any rules. You know, eat a Snickers bar for breakfast and watch TV till your eyes fall out. As opposed to Nancy Pelosi, who said, OK, I know what I need to get done. 
I know that there's some carrot and there's some stick. But the thing is, is that her caucus has to believe she's serious and has to believe she'll do the things she's going to do, good, bad, or otherwise. And that's why they generally fell in line. And I think that it was fascinating just as an aside to see when the C-SPAN cameras were actually filming the seats to see Pelosi literally in the back benches doing a play-by-play, like a field general explaining to different members how things are working and why this is going to happen and that's going to happen. It was an absolutely, even without being able to hear her, you could tell like she was imparting this wisdom that it was just a fascinating thing to witness. I've been trying this whole time we've been talking to come up with the appropriate analogy about comparing Pelosi to McCarthy. And I think the appropriate one is comparing Pelosi to McCarthy. Pelosi (laughs) is arguably the most successful speaker in modern times. McCarthy has been speaker for a couple of days now, and the general consensus is he's already one of the weakest in modern times, and it's only going to get worse from here. You know, Pelosi, if you've ever watched her up close, is absolutely masterful politician. Put her in a room with 100 people, she will walk up to the person whose birthday it is and say happy birthday. And when somebody says to her, tell me about the fiber optics bill for the rural communities, she'll say, well, you know, they wanted to go in this direction, but they needed this much bandwidth and we needed to, and she knows it cold. And her father was a mayor. Her brother was a mayor. She learned politics at the precinct level. She's been in the Congress a long time. She watched people fail. She learned how to enforce discipline, rate a whip count. She's a master. I don't think she should have gone to Taiwan, but she's a master. And McCarthy's a kid sitting in his crib, wetting his diaper. He's just not capable of doing any of that stuff. You know, I mean, look, Hakeem Jeffries was the leader of the Democrats for about five minutes. And every single vote, there were 212 Democrats. There was real discipline. And there was nothing like that. And, you know, who's been McCarthy's right hand? Steve Scalise? Oh, well, they must be very close because they're a team, right? Except that McCarthy was looking at Scalise like, oh, is this the guy who's going to undercut me? And so did Stefanik. When they thought Scalise might be on the rise, word is that both of them started knifing Scalise. Oh, he can't raise the money. He doesn't have it. Nobody wants him. Right, right. But that's the point. It's just, it is a clown car. And, you know, he happens to be the one who got squeezed into the driver's seat. I mean, you know, Matt Gates. how can he be a national political figure? How can Marjorie Taylor Greene be a national political figure? How can Lauren Boebert be a national political figure? I mean, nothing sums it up quite as well as the fact that Kevin McCarthy, in order to win, said, you know, this guy, George Santos, who's lied about everything, who's a complete fraud? He said, we'll take him. You know, he came in and his opening gambit was, we have no values. You said, Nancy Pelosi shouldn't have gone to Taiwan. I want to ask you about that, but I want to zoom out of the U.S. and I want to zoom back into China for a second. Given your sense of things, what do you think's going on over there? Because obviously they kept everybody locked up. They almost got themselves a revolution for the trouble. In the first public demonstrations, David, you'd probably know maybe. I don't know if it's been since 1989, but since anybody could actually see it on television. Now they've let people out of their homes. Now, of course, you know, COVID, whichever variant is raging. So what's going on in China from your perspective? Well, I mean, lots going on in China. And, you know, I think on on the COVID front, they mismanaged it at the beginning. They tried this zero tolerance policy. 
that proved to be an unsustainable policy. The only way you get out of that, of course, is to have a functioning vaccine. But they said, let's use our Sinovax vaccine. And it doesn't really work. And they have not had the self-awareness to say, you know, we got to move on to a different choice there. And normally they would just steal something like that, right? Well, I think they tried to. I think they just didn't come up with a good solution. But, you know, having said that, the main concern of every leader of China going back 5,000 years has been the stability of China. China has never been a country that went far outside its borders, built an empire. You know, every once in a while they would do some, something in their neighborhood. and they, They'd go to Mongolia. Right. And they did send a fleet across the Pacific in the 15th century or something to explore. But, you know, they have a big country, 1.4 billion people. Mostly their concern is the centrifugal forces that will pull apart a big country. And if it wasn't COVID, and if it isn't what's COVID on their mind, then the next thing is their economy. And it's not growing as fast as they want to, and central control isn't working in the way that they wanted it to. And they built all these new big cities, and many of them are empty, and they're still very vulnerable to energy price fluctuations and X, Y, and Z. So I think what's going on in China is they're trying to ride the tiger. And, you know, there's a lot of people in the United States, there's a whole industry that says, oh, this is the new Cold War and China's our new enemy and we've got to be prepared to fight them and land and see it in the air everywhere. No. First of all, there's 70,000 U.S. companies in China and we're economically interdependent. But the other thing is China wants to have a lot of influence. They want to influence the global system. They want to advance their interests. They are a rival of ours, but they got way too many internal problems to be devoting much attention to taking on the richest and most powerful nation in the world anytime soon. Let's go back to Taiwan then. So from your perspective then, and I saw a headline the other day that somebody was wargaming Taiwan, and the Taiwanese in this wargame, admittedly, did a pretty good job defending themselves. So do you think that that's a saber rattle, but not much more than that? Well, no, I think at some point, Taiwan will become part of China again. Whether it's going to happen peacefully or whether it's going to happen militarily, I don't know. It's an island 100 miles off the coast of China, and it was part of China for a long time. And my guess is, you know, you're not going to see the Chinese invade Taiwan in the next three or four years. I don't think they're ready right now. And and I think, by the way, the guess in the U.S. government is it won't happen for three or four or five years if it happens. But I also think that the assumptions in that war game involved the U.S. being able to provide a lot more supplies in advance and the U.S. being a lot more committed to the defense of Taiwan than I think we actually would be. Why is that? Because in the immortal words of the Princess Bride, never get involved in a land war in Asia? Well, yeah, or an island war or a sea war. I mean, that would be every kind of war. But I think it's because, you know, Americans are loath to do that kind of thing. And I think they would look at the Ukraine analogy and say, yeah, let's provide them with weapons and so forth. The problem is that Taiwan's an island. There's no railroad to Poland in Taiwan, right? So, you know, you've got to get the stuff there. You've got to get it there in advance. It's really hard to do. But the Taiwanese, you know, they've got this one superpower. They produce the vast majority of the world's semiconductors, all the advanced semiconductors. And if there were a war and their semiconductor industry were to take a hit, the global economy would grind to a halt. China would grind to a halt. We would grind to a halt. Everybody would grind to a halt. It would be a catastrophe. 
I mean, we saw that even just in COVID, right, where like they couldn't build cars. Well, that's right. Or they couldn't get the chips to the cars. Right. And frankly, I'm just as worried that Taiwan will be hit by a typhoon someday. And, you know, we're going to get a disruption in that. And it would be now, you know, we're starting to build some factories and so forth. But there's a great book that came out by a guy from Tufts, the Fletcher School, called Chip Wars. And it really sort of goes into this. And it's a bizarre situation. There's one company in Holland that makes one piece of equipment that you can't make chips without. And it's the only company that does it. You know, we've gotten to this point where the entire future economy of the world is dependent on, you know, a company in Holland and, you know, a couple of companies in Taiwan. It's crazy. That stuff worries me a lot more than the idea that we're going to get into a war with China soon. Do you think that that is a harbinger of some sort of manufacturing, even if it's high tech, starting to migrate home to the United States in a greater way? Oh, absolutely. Right. We've got a plant being built in New York. We've got a plant being built in Arizona. They're both going to employ tens of thousands of people. They're both involving huge investments, 10 to $20 billion investments. They take some time to get up to speed, and that's going to take a while before they're really helping us. But you know, strategically, it's smart. When I was in the Clinton administration, I was, as you said, I was Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade Policy. And then for some time, I was the acting undersecretary. And we'd go to these meetings. And if anybody had used the term industrial policy, somebody would have opened a window and tossed them out of it (laughs) because that was like communist. You know, it was like we were sort of right out of the Reagan era. And, you know, you wanted everything to be free markets. Now we've kind of realized every other country in the world has an industrial policy. They try to make sure that they can make the things they need to remain strategically viable. And we're finally coming around to this awareness and, you know, high time. What is it about the United States and its policy that it tends to swing from one vast thing to another and the right thing only happens? Is it sort of Churchillian, right? We'll do everything we need to do, but eventually we'll do the right thing, but we'll do it last. Well, I don't know. You know, I mean, Hegel made a name for himself with the dialectic and, you know, things going from thesis to antithesis and through via synthesis. And, you know, that's, I think there's a lot of that in life. But I think there is also a tendency, and I don't know if you do this. I mean, I can't tell from this shot whether you're absolutely fit and rippling muscles, but most of us, you know, (laughs) most of us, you know, go to the holidays, (laughs) overindulge. And then in January, you know, we're vegan for a month. We're on a diet or whatever. And we compensate. And then, you know, all of a sudden by February, it's like, oh, that pizza looks pretty good. We tend to swing back and forth. And I think, you know, that's almost human nature. Last question. January 6th of two years ago, Brazil was just days ago. Is this in the next couple of years a sign of things to come? Do you believe that political violence is something that is in store for us? Or do you think these were unique situations in unique places at unique times? I don't think they were unique because I think all of history has political violence in it. And I can see certain scenarios where we could see it again. You know, if Donald Trump gets hauled off to jail and, you know, a bunch of people on the far right don't like that, that could cause some problems. If Kamala Harris is elected president of the United States and there are a bunch of racist misogynists out there who join forces with the authoritarian anti-Democrats, that could cause a problem. There are all sorts of things that could trigger a problem here. I take a step back and I would say this. 
What worries me is that there is a global, authoritarian, anti-democratic, ethno-nationalist movement that has emanated out of Russia, but you find it with Viktor Orban in Hungary, and you find it with the right, who are kind of neo-fascists in Italy, or you find it with Marie Le Pen in France, or you find it with Bolsonaro in Brazil, or you find it with Modi in India, or you find it with Netanyahu in Israel. You, find, you know, there's been this move in this direction. And more importantly than political violence, it's whether this movement continues, gains strength, wins control of more countries, and is able to carve away at democratic protections. Because you know, look what's happened in the United States. You now have a Supreme Court that's considering a bunch of things that are very much likely to weaken democratic protections, like letting state legislatures determine who actually won an election to a greater degree than voters. You know, if that kind of stuff happens here, all bets are off, and whether there's violence or not, we're not going to be a democracy. Just one thing. So I got invited, David, to the kind of thing that's probably par for the course for you, but this very insidery dinner in December in D.C. I grew up there, but I am loath to go back, although my folks live there. And we were talking about 2024 and, you know, all this other stuff and, you know, Trump, 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 Trump. I don't think he can win. I'm like, if he's nominated, I think he absolutely can win. And they're like, okay, well, if he wins in 24, then, you know, in 28, who's going to run? I'm like, oh, (laughs) don't worry about 2028. If he wins, you won't have to worry about any of that stuff. And you can come visit me someplace, too, because you're not going to have to worry about any of that stuff. Look, glad you were there. And I you know, hope these insiders, whomever they were, will take it to heart. I personally don't think Trump will be the candidate. I don't particularly think DeSantis will be the candidate for a variety of reasons. But I think that if I look at the Republican field, eight out of 10 of the people that I see there are going to push things in this Trumpist authoritarian, anti-democratic direction, because essentially this is a minority party trying to keep the control of a minority in the face of the irreversible tide of demographic change in the United States. And that's their shtick, right? And the only way they can maintain power if the vast majority of Americans oppose them is by disconnecting the wires of democracy, by disconnecting the wires that give the majority influence in our system. And that's what they've been doing for years, one by one, disconnect this wire, disconnect this wire, so that they end up with a system that the minority can control. And that's the goal. And that's exactly what I said to the same group of people, David, as we close up here is, you know, yes, demographics is destiny. There are more of us than them, unless they get there first. Look, By 2043, according to the Census Bureau, we'll be a minority-majority nation. And with each ensuing year thereafter, that'll be more the case. And I think through that diversity will come strength in a global economy. We will be better off than other countries that don't have that kind of diversity. But between now and 2043, between now and that reality fully taking hold, the backlash, the fighting tooth and nail to hang on to White male Christian supremacy is going to be fierce. And by the way, if you read history, it's always the transitions that get you. What happens in the long run, that's why the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. But as Keynes said about the economy, in the long run, we're all dead. <laughs> and, and if you're living through a period of transition, it can be a period of 
both upheaval and violence. Right. All right. Well, David, I want to thank you for joining me today. Before we let you get out of here, because I know you got to run, where can everyone find you online and find your work? Well, you go to the DSRnetwork.com and you see all the podcasts that we have at the DSR Network, Deep State Radio and Words Matter. And we do, I think, seven podcasts a week. I'm a columnist at the Daily Beast and I write a column there every few days, a couple times a week. Try to write a book every couple of years. And, you know, I'm one of those guys that's on MSNBC every so often because why not? Uh, You know, they need somebody to talk about foreign policy periodically. Amen to that. Well, and as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. David Rothkopf, thank you again for joining me and everyone else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.